want to continue this morning, though, in our study of Ecclesiastes, expository series where I preach the text to you by explaining it, by helping you apply it, and hopefully you leave here with a change of either mind or action or both in your own life. We've been looking at this great book written by Solomon, a man of great human wisdom and a man of great godly wisdom at times. But we looked at how in Ecclesiastes it's an account of his wandering years. He's looking back and he's saying what he did wrong. And he's saying what he looked for. He was looking for the answer. The answer to life. And so we went through chapter 1. We now start chapter 2. And and this first passage in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, what we're looking at here is the emptiness of pursuing pleasure. The emptiness of pursuing pleasure. Let me just read the text to you. I'm going to read from the NASB. But I'm going to change a few words to make it more literal. And if you've been here the last few weeks, you'll see why I'm changing some of these words. If you haven't been here, I encourage you to go back on our website and listen, especially to the first sermon on chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where we looked at what's the main theme of Ecclesiastes. So reading now, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, 1 through 11. I said to my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself. And behold, it too was Hevel. I said of laughter, it is madness and a pleasure. What does it accomplish? I explored with my heart how to stimulate my body with wine while my heart was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and I had homeborn slaves. Also, I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Also, I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was Havel, and striving after wind, and there was no advantage under the sun. The pursuit of pleasure. It's a modern day addiction. We want to use that a worldly term, addiction, it, it often seems like the modern man is on an endless pursuit of more and more pleasure. Some people, that's all they live for. I want every moment of every day to feel good, and if I can't get it in my life, I'll put it in my body to make my body feel good. So if we were to just to use that word addiction and look up some statistics, and addiction really is just a nicer word for those who are hooked on a sin of pleasure-seeking. 
Statistics show that there's about 10 to 15 million sex addicts in our country, 25 million drug and alcohol addicts, 40 million nicotine addicts, not to mention gambling, food addictions, prescription drugs, and many other things. A large percentage, a large majority, you could say, of our society in America is constantly pursuing pleasure. Give me more pleasure. I want to feel good. I don't want to feel bad. And now Solomon is going to address this idea of pleasure. Is that the way that we should look at life? Is that the way that a believer, that a follower of God should look at life? Remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, he started this section, which runs all the way through the end of chapter 2, with a question. And he's seeking the answer to this question. The question is, what advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun? What's the point? When I'm gone, what's left over? What's the surplus? What's the advantage? What's the profit? And so he's been looking at various things in his life as he looks back and sort of recounts the searches that he went on. So far, he's sought answers in various places. In chapter 1, we looked at how he looked at creation, the natural world. But he said the natural world just remains the same. We're always changing. The answer is not to be found there. He said that we're like a fleeting vapor, hevel. We're here one moment and we're gone the next. He then looked at human history. And he said the answer is not there. Because we die and we just forget the generation before us. And we forget everything that's already been learned. And there's nothing new under the sun. He then went into the realm of science. Science here just meaning to know. What do humans know? And he studied up all that humans have learned, all that they've done in the ancient world at that time. He sought wisdom from all kinds of places. And what did he find? Whether it was science, mathematics, philosophy, again, the answer was not there. It was all a mist. It was all a vapor. And now he turns to pleasure. And with pleasure, it's not just a study of the mind. He has to then take his body to experience these pleasures. There are a few places in the world that you can look for answers. And he says, well, I've tried all these others. Let me try pleasure. Let me test pleasure. So the first major point of this passage that I want you to see is how he's putting pleasure to the test. He's not just testing himself with pleasure, but he's actually putting the concept of pleasure to the test. Will this be it? Is this what life is all about? All we can hope for. Just seek pleasure, and when it's all said and done, that's all there is. You'll notice in verse 1, he again speaks to his heart. I've mentioned how this comes up a few times in Scripture. Anytime someone's speaking to their soul, to their heart, it's usually not a good thing they're saying to their soul, to their heart. Even though Disney teaches us to listen to our hearts, the Bible says our hearts are corrupt. Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts lead us into sin. Well, here's Solomon speaking to himself, to his heart. Come now, I will test you with pleasure. I will test your heart, my heart, he's saying, with pleasure. He, he proposes a test. He's going to have a go at the pleasure lifestyle. Let me live it up. I'm going to let my heart just go wherever it wants to seek pleasure. See if there's anything there. Maybe the answer does lie in pleasure. Now, the word for pleasure here in this verse in Hebrew means foolish pleasure. This is not the pleasure that you might get from seeing your child do something wonderful or the birth of a child or when you're on your wedding day. This is 
foolish pleasure, self-indulgent, frivolous merrymaking. It's used in the Bible for banqueting, drinking, and merrymaking. So don't just think of everything being included here, but the foolish pleasures of the world. And Solomon has all the power to do that. He has all the financial means, as we'll see, to get anything he wants. Any kind of pleasure in that day that his heart desired, he could have it. And here's what he says. So enjoy yourself. Just enjoy yourself. Just let me enjoy myself and do whatever I want. Literally, it's you will see what is good. I said to my heart, come now, let me test you with pleasure and you will see heart what is good. You will make a judgment. It's time to live it up, in other words. It's time to really enjoy life. You know, stop holding back. Stop letting those things that my parents and my church taught me right and wrong. Let's just go out and do as we please. Obviously, he's not saying that he wants to harm anybody, but he is saying he wants to test himself with all kinds of pleasure. He's trying out what so many today spend their whole life chasing. The philosophy of hedonism. Have you heard of this word hedonism? It's the theory that pleasure and the sense of satisfaction of our desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Hedonism. Just letting your heart and mind run wild to get pleasure and move away from pain. Now Solomon tells us from the beginning. You don't have to wonder where he's going to land on this. He tells us. And behold, it too was, and depending on what translation you have, it could be different here. It too was Hevel, a word we've seen before in Ecclesiastes. It too was short-lived. It was a breath. Literally, Hevel means breath. It has to do with the the figure of a short-lived mist, a breath that's here one day and gone the next second. Your life is like a breath. Your life is like a vapor. It's fleeting. It's ephemeral. It's gone. That's what pleasure is all about. He's telling us up front, listen to me. I've tried this. I had everything. And before he even goes into what he tried, he's telling us, look, listen closely. Don't do this. This isn't a to-do list. Some of you might be trying to do what he's about to list out here. He's saying, don't do this. I'm telling you this, and it's God-inspired, so you don't go down the same road that I did. I'm warning you ahead of time. It, too, was Hevel. It, too, was not the most important thing in life. I did it, he says. I did it because it was going to give me, I thought, more time and money and all the joys of life. But it was just a waste. It was just a waste. You see, pleasure in itself is is not always sinful. Remember, he's talking about just giving our hearts to pleasure, to our desires. But pleasure is not always sinful in and of itself in life. There are good and godly pleasures that the Lord has given us to enjoy time on this earth. He's about to talk about that later in chapter 2. He'll have more to say about that in the book of Ecclesiastes. A pleasure can be from the Lord for good. And Solomon will have much to say about that. But he's, he's seeking here the purpose in life. Is it to be found with pleasure, with getting everything? And he's saying no. A biblical counselor, David Pallison, said that God wired human beings so that we would experience pleasure. But sin scrambles the wires and pleasure becomes a God we worship. You see, that's the problem. God, God has given us the ability to experience pleasure, but we've turned what is good and we've scrambled it into what is bad so often in our lives. 
Well, he gives us more in verse 2 of his warning before he lists out all the things that he's tried. I said of laughter, it's madness. It's crazy. It's folly. Laughing itself is not condemned. There will be other places in the Bible where people have a good time. Laughing is not condemned all around. But this is the sort of fun and games that people waste their life with. That's not the answer. That's not the answer. The Hebrew word for laughter here is superficial gaiety. Used to the fun of a game in Proverbs 10, 23. Or a party later in Ecclesiastes 10, 19. Or the derision which Jeremiah suffered when people were laughing at him in Jeremiah 27. Laughter is not the point. Don't just try to live it up and have a good time. Always laughing. Always frolicking. This is shallow laughter. It's of no use. Life is not one big joke. Paul says in Ephesians 5.4, And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. No continuous joking, reveling. It's just madness. It's folly. It's a delusion to go through life thinking everything is a joke. Not taking anything serious. There's a lot of Christians that don't take the worship of God serious. There's a lot of Christians that don't take church serious. There's a lot of Christians that don't take their own personal growth and holiness serious. And they think it's just fun and games. It's a laugh. Not to even talk about the world that doesn't take these things serious, of course. But he says of laughter, it's madness. It's a waste of time. It's crazy. It's folly. And of pleasure, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? Another question. Remember, this is the wisdom book. And he's going to pose questions to us. He wants us to think. He wants us to think about our own life. He wants us to think about our own experience, our own desires. He wants us to think about everything else the Bible teaches. So he asks this question, what does it accomplish? What does it accomplish? I should enjoy myself, live for today, shrug my shoulders, be happy. Why worry about life? Forget it all, enjoy yourself, and just laugh. That's the hedonistic lifestyle. But what does it really achieve, he says? What does it accomplish? So you get all those things. So you do all of that, and what have you actually got? The wind, a breath, a vapor. It's gone. It's gone. Just like the snow melted yesterday. It's gone. You could hold that snow all you want, but eventually it's going to melt. It's gone. It's just madness. It's folly. What does chasing after that do? You find pleasure for a while. And then you go somewhere else to find pleasure and somewhere else. And does it lead to any lasting satisfaction? And especially, does it lead to anything after you're gone? Is there anything left? What does it do for you in the next life? Will it do anything to glorify God? That's an important question we need to ask as a Christian. This might feel good and it might, might even be okay, meaning it's not sinful. But does it glorify God? Does it glorify God? You often hear people say, I'm just not happy. Same kind of attitude I think Solomon would have had here. I'm going to seek pleasure and laughter. I'm just not happy. People say, I want something more. I want to enjoy life like others do. The grass is always greener on the other side, right? They've got it better. I look at their social media and they're living it up. They're having a great time. No problems in life. That's what I want. I need more pleasure. After all, God wants me to be happy, right? Better watch it when we say that. That God wants me to be happy. There's no verse for that. Actually, it says you're going to go through some hard times. Life is not always going to be about pleasure. There's a lot of pain. Jesus said you're going to have pain in the Christian life. They gave me pain. You think the world's not going to give you pain and persecution? 
Of course. You're going to have times of pleasure that is God-ordained and times of pain. But never say to yourself, God just wants me to be happy all the time. Or I'm going to do this sin because God just wants me to be happy. People expect happiness and joy to come from amassing things up in their life or going certain places to achieve certain goals. It's nothing. It's a vapor. I once was evangelizing a doctor friend and uh, he was just getting into his practice. He was enjoying that new life, that new experience. And I started talking to him about going to church, about Jesus Christ. And he said, you know, that's good. I mean, I was born kind of in a Christian family. But I just don't have time for that right now. I just don't have time for that in my life. Maybe someday when I've lived a little, when I've enjoyed life, he said, then I'll worry about God. Then I'll seek out God. And as far as I know to this day, he's still not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's putting pleasure to the test. Number two, the second main point, and this is where he lists out all of his sinful desires. Number two, looking for pleasure in all the wrong places. Solomon, the preacher here, the Hebrew word koaleth, the preacher, the teacher, the professor, he now is going to go into detail about his persistent methodical search to attempt to find lasting pleasure. And most of this list, if we just take one thing out of the list, isn't in and of itself sinful. It's because he put it on a pedestal. It's because he focused his life on pleasure out of those things. That's what made it sinful. Now there's one later, many concubines, that is sinful. First of all, he's going to try alcohol. So if you're wanted to make a subpoint for number two in your notes, the first thing he tries is alcohol. I explored with my mind. Again, this is my heart. I'm not sure why the NASB didn't want to translate it more literally, but heart encompasses the whole person. When we think of mind, we just think of the effects upon our mind, our intelligence, our thinking. But this is his heart, his whole person, the center of his being. He's going to explore, once again, something with his whole life. And here's what it is. How to stimulate my body with wine. And it's even a bit stronger here in the original. It's, it's how to draw out with wine my body. How to let wine lead my body in all kinds of places. All kinds of thoughts and feelings, pleasure. Wine is going to be the master that drives him around with a whip. Wine is going to pull him forward into the different things of life. And we'll see what happens, he's saying. And he still says, while my mind, again, my heart here, was guiding me wisely. He's going to let alcohol control his body, but like so many, he thinks, well, my mind will still be over it. I, I, I will know when to stop. I will know when I've had enough, when I've partied too long. And this does tell us he's not out to be a lifelong drunk. He's not saying I want to be a homeless person and drink every day and just get money so I can drink more and more. But no doubt, if you read 1 Kings and all the sins that he committed, no doubt that drinking made it easier for him to commit those sins. It numbed his mind to commit those sins. But that's not his goal here. He's trying to do it wisely, according to human wisdom. He's going to let his body go with wine and see what happens and evaluate it. He's going to do a study. He's going to research it. And he says, and how to take hold of folly. Now that's dangerous right there, to think that you could take hold of folly. 
and come out unscathed and untouched by such foolishness. He's talking here about the drinking and partying lifestyle. That's what he's talking about. Living that lifestyle. I'm going to go live the partying lifestyle. I'm going to go join all the frat houses at UTSA and live it up and see what happens. I'm going to drink as much as I can, but still try to think. Now, he's not just talking about the sin of drunkenness. The whole Bible talks about drunkenness being a sin. He doesn't need to tell us that here. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. He's not so much talking about drunkenness. He's saying the drinking lifestyle, the whole lifestyle that it brings. The connoisseur of all the vineyards and the wine. I'm going to live it up. I'm going to party. I'm going to have a good time. And he's trying to teach us that it's foolish to look for a purpose in a bottle. You can't look for life's meaning in a bottle. You can't look for life's meaning in a beer can. It's not there. And he says he's going to do that until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. See, that's a driving influence in the book of Ecclesiastes. We only have a short life. So what should we do with it? What's going to last? What's the advantage after we're gone? Well, I'll try wine. We'll see what happens with alcohol. Any reason that life under the sun on the earth must be about giving huge parties and drinking it up till we die. Let us eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. That's what the ancient world said. And that's what many in our world today say. Let's just live it up. We've only got one life to live. Live it up. He was throwing parties and banquets all the time. Go over to 1 Kings chapter 4. And you might just want to bookmark 1 Kings because we'll always go back to see what Solomon is doing in his life there. The historical account here. 1 Kings chapter 4 verse 22. Let's learn from this. Let's learn from his life. He had everything that a person could have. 1 Kings 4.22 Solomon's provision for one day. One day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen. Now, you may not know what a core is, but you know how big an oxen is. 10 of them for one day. I mean, that's really smoking a lot of meat, isn't it? 20 pasture-fed oxen. So we're not even done. we got the fat oxen. Those are the ones that have been finished to fatten up. Then he's got some right off the field. Those are the lean ones. 100 sheep. Besides deer, gazelles, he's even got all this game here, right? He likes the wild game on the smoker, and he likes the brisket on the smoker. Roebucks, fat and foul. Is that just for him? Is he eating all that food? One man can't eat all that food in a day. One commentator, Walt Kaiser, says some estimates suggest that it would take thirty or 40,000 people to consume that much food each day. They didn't even eat meat every day at every meal. 30 to 40,000 people he's feeding. No doubt that's his troops. No doubt dignitaries, people coming to visit, different people in government. But he is having a party all day, every day, for years and years and years. If you go to 1 Kings, go back to 420. It says, Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. They were eating and drinking and rejoicing. Now, no doubt some of them were doing it in a godly way. Some of them were glorifying God, rejoicing for all that he'd blessed them with under Solomon's reign. But Solomon's doing a test. He's, he's testing alcohol to see if it will work. And so he became a great connoisseur 
of fine wines. If he lived here, he would be up in Fredericksburg every day. He would go to all the vineyards and go to Comfort, then go up to the, the lakes region, just checking out all the vineyards, partying it up, drinking all day long as much as he could. Well, that didn't work, so he tried something else. Number two, real estate. You got to have some place to enjoy these parties. And everybody likes to build great things for themselves, especially kings of the ancient world. And we're all sort of kings of our own domain today, McMansions and all of these things that we want. Verse 4, I enlarged my works. That's a general statement. Everything after that, he's going to talk about what he enlarged. All the details of how he enlarged his property. I built houses for myself. Now, he devoted 13 years to building the king's house. 1 Kings 9.10 13 years to building a house. That took longer back then. They didn't have some of the equipment we have today, but that's still a long time. That's a big house. Then, in 1 Kings 10, 17, it says, he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. So a second home made out of lots of cedars from Lebanon. Then he built another house for his most famous wife, Pharaoh's daughter. It says he also built the cities of Hazar, Megiddo, Gezer, Beth Horon, Baloth, and Tadmor in the wilderness. So he built up the walls, he built up the towers, and no doubt built some homes out in those places for himself and his government. But notice this phrase, for myself. It's going to come up eight times in the Hebrew of verses 4 through 9. He's building this all for whom? Himself. You notice what's not in this list? The temple. Didn't he build God's temple? Yeah, he did. He he built God's temple, but it's not mentioned because he's talking here about what he did for himself. It's the gospel of selfishness. These are all the things I did for myself. He's not going to mention the temple because that's for God. Everything else, though, for himself. For himself. You know, I'll give to the church, but all the rest of my money, it's all for me, myself, and I. It's for myself. The gospel of selfishness. The good news. You can have whatever you want as long as you have the means and go out and buy it for yourself. And if you don't have the means for it, you can go to a prosperity gospel church and give a seed, they say, and make even more. Get 10 times back, and 10 times back, and 100 times back. We built our whole culture, it seems like, around this today. For myself. He says, I planted vineyards, more real estate, for myself. Now, this would have supplied all the wine that he needed for the parties. He's got thirty to 40,000 people coming to eat all these oxen and sheep and deer. He's got to have the alcohol for the parties. So he's got the vineyards. And all this would have been business property as well. Vineyards were very productive. They could bring a lot of profit. So he didn't just have personal real estate, but he had commercial real estate. Great wealth. He had businesses working from that commercial real estate. And in verse 5, I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. Now the gardens here are the pride of ancient kings. We have yards. We have trees. They had dirt up until the 1900s. Everybody just had dirt, unless you happen to live in a place that naturally grew a lot of grass. In the Middle East, they had dirt. That was it. They built their houses out of it. Maybe some rocks that were laying around. Their yard was dirt. He's not just saying he had a nice front lawn. He built a great garden, a place that you could sit in the shade. Think of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon who was said to have built the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the wonders of the ancient world. 
waterfalls, ponds, trees, fruit. That's gardens. And then he mentions parks. Now, if gardens are grand, what do you think a park is? That's even larger. In fact, it's a loan word here that he borrows from the Persians. Tell me what this sounds like. Paradise. It comes over into Hebrew, sounding very similar to how it does in Persian language. It comes over into Greek and into English, paradise. He built many paradises, large parks, all the things that you would want there. A large enclosed parks with trees of all kinds, intended for a life of ease and pleasure. He's not just investing here. He's not just doing a business. This is for himself. He wants to enjoy it. If you're a king of the ancient world, you want to sit back and sip your wine under a shade tree. Watch the wind blow the flowers. See the waterfalls trickle. Enjoy a party outside. Gardens and parks would provide shade, refreshment. People would love to come. You might even think of it as a modern amusement park. Although he wouldn't have had all the rides, the fun and games and the entertainment there. And a park would be similar. Verse 6, he doesn't stop. He's still going with this real estate. I made ponds of water for myself, which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. Many pools today in and around Jerusalem to water these gardens and parks. There's even a, a set of pools a few miles south of Jerusalem in the Valley of Artis, southwest of Jerusalem. It may be some of what he's talking about here. Three ancient stone pools. They still hold water today. And on average, they're a little bit different in size, each one, but on average, they're three times the size and depth of an Olympic swimming pool. 3,000 years ago, he built three Olympic swimming pools, but they're really three times the size of an Olympic swimming pool. Just to sit around, have pool parties, enjoy it, live it up. When we consider all of this, how the word paradise is used three times in the New Testament, every time paradise is used in the New Testament, it speaks of heaven. Remember Jesus, what he said to the man on the cross? Today you'll be with me in paradise. Because heaven is like a paradise. And the, and the new heavens and new earth will be like a paradise. When you take into consideration the Garden of Eden, do you realize what he's trying to do here? He's trying to build a Garden of Eden for himself. A heaven on earth. That's what so many do in our world today. Try to build heaven here. Let's have everything that we want, desire, and could ever need right now here. And then they began to think that heaven is like here. If I love something here, then it must be in heaven. Right? We're going to sit on the cloud and do our favorite thing. What is your favorite thing? If it's golf, then sit on the cloud and play golf. I don't know how you do that on the cloud. Play harps if you're a musician. We start to think of heaven like now. Now, there are some similarities. But he's trying to build heaven on earth. See, if Solomon was living today, if he was here, he'd have three homes in the Dominion. He'd have a lake house at LBJ. He'd have a mountain home in Colorado, a beach house, on Padre, a big ranch in West Texas to go hunting on for weeks on end, plus all the fancy cars, hot rod cars, and pickup trucks to make all of that enjoyable. And that probably would just be a small fraction. Wait till we get to how much money he actually has coming in every year. He had all the property anyone could want. He had it all for himself. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 7, he starts on the third thing that he's looking for, the wrong place that he's looking for pleasure possessions. He's looking for pleasure in all the wrong places. And the third one is possessions. He tried alcohol. And he's probably doing this all at the same time. Alcohol, real estate, and then possessions. 
He says, I bought male and female slaves. And I had homeborn slaves, literally sons of the house. The homeborn slaves were, are slaves that are born in his house from other slaves. These slaves took care of the vast herds of sheep and cattle and horses that he had. They were the workers in his vineyards. They were the servers at his parties. A sign of wealth in the ancient world. If you go back to 1 Kings chapter 10, look at how many servants he had, slaves. 1 Kings 10.4. Remember the queen of Sheba comes up from Africa to meet him? Probably Ethiopia. It says, when the queen of Sheba perceived all the wisdom of Solomon. So she heard about his wisdom. She went to meet him in person. The house that he had built. It wasn't just his wisdom that drew her, but this wonderful house that he had built. The food of his table. The seating of his servants. He has seating for his servants. There's so many. The attendance of his waiters. These are his slaves. And their attire. So he had slaves and they were attired richly. His cupbearers, other types of slaves. His stairway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. She was floored by it all. You could think that she was just floored by it. She, she lost her breath. No more spirit, no more breath in her. It was amazing to see all that he had, including these slaves. It continues in verse 7 here. Also, I possess flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Now, this is the truest test of wealth in the ancient world. You could have money, but it might be gone the next day. If you have vast herds, they're going to keep producing, reproducing and reproducing and reproducing. You can sell them for money. Just like in any business today, you can sell some of your property for money. You can produce more of it. And you can eat it. It's a food source. Well, Solomon inherited his father David's livestock. David had, he had cattle, camels, donkeys, sheep, goats. He imported horses. And in 2 Chronicles 9.25, listen to how many horses he had and chariots. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots. And he had 12,000 horsemen. So he had chariots, two times 4,000, that's 8,000. 12,000 horsemen, that's a single guy riding a single horse. 20,000 horses just for his army. Not to include all of his personal travels and fun. And he stationed them in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. All the sheep, all the cattle they needed for food. Verse 8, here it is with the money. Possessions, I collected silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. He was the wealthiest man of ancient times. He would be the wealthiest man alive today if he lived. I probably shortchanged him on all the homes that I said he would have around here. Because go back to 1 Kings 10 and verse 14. And look at this number. Now the weight of gold which, he, which came in to Solomon in one year, 666 talents of gold. Well, how much is that? How much is a talent? Talent is an ancient measurement of gold. They estimate it weighed about 75 pounds. A talent is 75 pounds. So today, one talent of gold is worth just under $2 million. One talent of gold. He had 666 talents per day coming in. Or per year, sorry, per year. You know how much that is? $1.3 billion per year in today's money. He would put Bill Gates to shame, all these wealthy men around the world. Solomon would have put them all to shame. No doubt, that's not even his net worth. They didn't even include that. $1.3 billion per year. 
It's no wonder that it says in 2 Chronicles 9.27, the king made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. And he made cedars as plentiful as sycamore trees that are in the lowland. You could just find silver anywhere back then. You could make a living and make lots of money because Solomon was bringing all this wealth in. He had everything. See, he's building up his case here. He had everything to enjoy and give him pleasure. Alcohol, property, real estate, possessions. He had all kinds of possessions. First Kings again, chapter 10, verse 22. For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver, ivory, apes, peacocks. He had his own personal zoo. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the kings, uh, all the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift. So everybody who visited him brought him a gift. Articles of silver, gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, mules. So much year by year. Extremely wealthy. More money than we could ever imagine. And on top of that, he says he had provinces. He was the ruler over other kings around the Euphrates River all the way down to the border of Egypt. He had wealth coming in from that. You might think, well, if God gave me a billion dollars, I would really be happy. Solomon says, I had more than that. Well, if God gave me two billion and all these homes, I'd be happy. More than that, Solomon had. Didn't work. And he keeps going. He's not done. I provided for myself, male and female singers. He had a band on hand anytime. Concert. Every party's a concert. And the pleasures of men, many concubines. Now this word translated here, many concubines, it's been difficult. That's, that's the NASB. It's been a difficult verse to translate. It's the only place it's found in all the Old Testament. You can't find it anywhere else outside the Bible. And it's only used one time here. So in the King James and New King James, it's musical instruments. That's their best guess. The Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, says cupbearers. Similar, the, the Latin Vulgate, the one that the Roman Catholics use, say goblets and jugs. A few translations just says more riches, treasure chests, luxuries, money. But the word likely, the best guess based on other languages, is that it means breast, a woman's breast, and the singular, and then again in the plural. So it's a likely word, just figurative for Solomon's wives and concubines. He had what was considered the pleasure of Adam, the pleasures of mankind, is literally how it reads. Many concubines. Now, concubine is not a slave in the ancient world. We often think that it's a slave. It's not. It's a second-rank wife. So he had a wife. That would be, if he had a wife, then that would be somebody who maybe had some money, who brought some wealth into it, had a name. Maybe she was a princess if she married Solomon, like Pharaoh's daughter. But a concubine didn't have nobility. They were a second rank, second status. They didn't have wealth. They didn't have a name attached to their family. But they were beautiful. And so kings would take them into their harem like we see in the book of Esther. So these are women who are not wealthy, not nobility, but beautiful, chosen to become concubines for pleasure. Now go back to 1 Kings. 1 Kings 11.3. Look at how many wives and concubines he had. 1 Kings 11.3, he had 700 wives, princesses. So that kind of clues you into what a wife is, like a princess or a noble person's daughter. 
and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his heart away. His wives turned his heart away because they were worshiping false gods. And these concubines just led him into further and further. Of course, he, he chose to do it, right? He chose to use them for his pleasure. He let the lust of the flesh drive him. He's tried everything. And he's going to go for the lust of the flesh. And really, that was Solomon's great sin. We just saw Solomon's a great sin here in the Bible. He multiplied wives. He multiplied money. He multiplied property, armies. In fact, Abner Chow from the Master's University says it like this. Solomon's great sin was that he multiplied the three G's. Gold, girls, and giddy up. Now that's memorable. Gold, girls, and giddy up. He, he multiplied those things. That's his great sin. Now here he's telling from a different perspective in Ecclesiastes. He's saying, well, I went after those things to just test pleasure. Maybe he started that way. But if you read 1 Kings, it led his heart astray. So he sums this all up in, in verse 9. I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. Just in case you think he left anything out. He says, I was, I was greater than all who came before me. My father David, all the other kings, the Canaanite kings, all the kings that have ruled here. I had it all, he says. You think pleasure is going to give you something in life? He says, I had it all. And what's his conclusion going to be? We'll see. We'll see in a moment. He says, I had it all. And my wisdom also stood by me. He didn't go crazy. He didn't become a drunken a man on the side of the road who couldn't later write Ecclesiastes. You could say that his mind returned to him and he repented and wrote this book, which I believe he did. Much like Nebuchadnezzar got his mind back after God's punishment. What are you seeking in life to explore? He explored all these things. Alcohol, property, possessions. What are you looking for in life to explore? What are you letting your heart draw you away towards? Think about that. Even Christians, we let money draw us away. Real estate, alcohol, drugs. It's popular now. Christians, Some Christians, professing Christians, are saying that it's fine to do drugs. Marijuana, God made them as plants. Ignoring all that the scripture says to not do those things. A job? Sometimes your job can lead you away. Sometimes your job can lead your heart away thinking that you'll find pleasure from your work. That comes up over and over in the book of Ecclesiastes. Wealth, video games, sports, homes, partying. All of these things have a tendency to be idolized by us, don't they? You see, when you become a Christian, those things don't just go away. Now, your desire for them is often less. God gives us his spirit to fight against temptation of idolizing things of the world. But we're still drawn back to them. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 7, do not be idolaters. What's he talking about? He says, as some of them were in the Old Testament, talking about when they built the golden calf. But here's the real problem. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. They partied. They lived it up. They fulfilled the desires of the flesh. That's what it means to play there. They had a good time. He says, that's idolatry. Don't do it. Don't do it. Well, let's look at his final verdict. The third main point. The final verdict on pursuing pleasure. So he looked for it in all the wrong places. He didn't find it. What's his conclusion? Number, uh, verse 10. All that my eyes desired. He's summing it up here. 
All that my eyes desired, all that my heart wanted, I did not refuse my eyes. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. For my heart was pleased because of all my labor. Look, I worked hard for these things. I built vineyards. I built buildings. I had this wine made. I did all this thing. I got all this money. I ruled my people. I worked hard for it. My heart was pleased because of that. But looking for the answer to life and pleasure is just an idol, though. It's just an idol. Again, he's trying to get back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 6. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes. Remember, Solomon says, all that my eyes desired. And Eve said, that looks delightful to my eyes. I think I'll take of it. There can't be anything wrong. I mean, it looks healthy. Fruit's healthy for you, right? It's good for you. And that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband. Here's how John, the apostle, summarizes that in 1 John 2, 16. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. And here's his first conclusion. It's not the final one, but he says, and this was my reward for all my labor. Now, some might read this and say, well, there you go. It panned out for him. He got a reward for all that he put in, didn't he? He worked really hard for this life of pleasure, this hedonistic lifestyle, and he got a reward for it. See, the pursuit of pleasure must be good after all then, right? Let's read carefully here. Notice the word is reward. It's not the word that we saw back in chapter 1, verse 3, advantage, is how my translation puts it. Hebrew is yitron, the advantage, the surplus. Here, the word for reward is chalik. It's a part. It's a share. It's just a little piece of pleasure and enjoyment. Our little piece in this life is to enjoy the few things that God has given us for our labor. And we can grant him that. He's going to go into that later in chapter 2. But it's not the ultimate advantage. It's not the yitron, the gain, the surplus that he's been looking for since verse 3 of chapter 1. And guess what? This little piece of reward how long will that last? It's gone. It's gone today, right? You work hard, go buy food, you enjoy a good meal, and then you wake up in the morning, you're hungry again. And in my house, all those kids are hungry too. So we got to go buy more food. It's nice. It's enjoyable. That's our reward for working, but it's gone. It's just a little piece. And here's his final conclusion, verse 11. Thus I considered all my activities, which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. So I got my little reward for working hard, and I stood back and looked, and here's what he says. All was Havel. All of it. This whole search for pleasure. Now remember, this word doesn't mean meaningless. I don't even like the translation vanity. It's not necessarily saying there's no point in life. It's saying that everything is so fleeting. Be very careful where you put all your effort. Because all this pleasure searching, all this pursuit, it was fleeting. It was gone. It was empty. There's nothing left over. It's like a breath on a cold day. You got out earlier this week. Your breath comes out. You see it instantly gone. There's no substance to it. It's like a puff of smoke. And it's like striving after wind, he says. Can you catch the wind? He's going to keep bringing this figure up, this metaphor here. Can you catch the wind? What happens if you can catch the wind? You've got nothing. It's like herding cats, I said last week or two weeks ago. It's like herding cats. You can't do it. There's no point. 
like trying to get all your kids to obey all at once for just five minutes. It's very hard to do. And he says, look, don't do that. There's nothing left over for it. He's not saying don't work. He's not even saying you can never drink. He's not even saying you can never build property or invest in real estate. He's not saying that you can't enjoy the single wife of your youth. He's not saying that. But he's saying if you idolize that stuff, if you think that you're going to find ultimate pleasure there and something left over in life, there's no profit under the sun. That's how he finishes. There's no profit, no advantage. Same exact Hebrew word back in chapter 1, verse 3. No yitron, no advantage under the sun. On this life, under the sun. We're not talking about heaven right now. We're not talking about where God is and what God would say. Solomon's relating his experience. It's inspired by God. It's all true. But from this point of view, and it's truth, there is no profit under the sun in seeking pleasure. No advantage. What happened when he died? All that he had done, what happened when he died? It went to his son. And then his son was so foolish, the kingdom split. So he immediately lost most of the property, except at Jerusalem and surrounding it. Future generations, more and more was lost. Can you go see any of his gardens or parks today? Where are Solomon's fruit trees? Now you might can go see those pools, but that's it. That's it. Where's his concubines that he took such pleasure in? Where are they? They were gone. Many may have died before he did. Some died soon after. Where's all those sensual pleasures that he sought after? They've all perished. None of them are still around. You see, if you spend your whole life getting pleasure from those things, and then you die and go before God, you can't bring it with you. You can't pull that, uh, what's the saying? There, there's no moving trailer behind the hearse, right? No U-Haul behind the hearse. You can't bring it with you and say, God, look at my money and my real estate, my wives. Solomon couldn't do that. He learned a very hard lesson, didn't he? But at least he learned. At least he learned by the end and turned back and repented and wrote this book. Many people today don't ever learn. They just seek pleasure and pleasure. And when that won't give them more pleasure, they go to the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one until they're either dead or completely burnt out with no mind and body left. This will make me more happy if I chase this. This spouse doesn't make me happy, so I'll get another spouse and another spouse and another spouse. This home, this job, constantly searching and searching for more pleasure. It doesn't work. Just a little bit more, people say. Just a few more images, just a few more videos on the internet. It's going to be my last time. Then I'll stop. You know what the heart says? More, more, more. Just look at the people today who've fallen in ministry. Great names in ministry. You hear about it on the news all the time now. Christian news. Ravi Zacharias. Carl Lentz, a leader of Hillsong in New York. Art Azurdia, a preacher that many of us respected. All fallen due to sexual sin. Seeking pleasure. They were seeking pleasure. You see, anyone who makes pleasure, their main goal in life is not going to be satisfied. They won't. It just numbs them to God and the things of God. It numbs you to the love of Christ and to all that Christ can give us. It's meant to be a byproduct, pleasure is. It's just a byproduct. We go through life, we work hard, we get a little pleasure. 
a little byproduct, a little gift along the way that God gives us. It's not meant to be an idol. It's not meant to be something we search after every single day of our life. Don't seek after pleasure. Don't be a pleasure seeker. Always pursuing pleasure. It'll never happen. You'll never be fully satisfied. We're not meant for that. We're meant to be satisfied by God. We're meant to be satisfied by all that God can give us and all that God is. Jesus says in Luke 8, 14, he's talking about all the seed that went out. Remember, there's four kinds of seed. Only one kind is saved. Only one kind bears fruit. Luke 8, 14, talking about the seed. It fell among the thorns. Those are the thorns. or Those are the ones who have heard the gospel. And as they go on their way, they're choked with worries, riches, and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. There's no fruit. Meaning they're not saved. They hear the gospel. They seem like believers. And then suddenly there's worries. And then there's riches. Wow. And pleasure. And there's no fruit. They run away. Solomon repented. He showed us his mistakes, his sins. But what are we doing? Are we repenting? Because if you don't, if you live a whole life like this, and die, and you're going to go to God, and you know what he's going to say? Away from me, workers of lawlessness. This is a gospel issue. Solomon's not writing in the New Testament times, but this is a gospel issue. He's looking for pleasure in all the wrong places, and we often do the same. And Christians in the South, in Texas, in San Antonio, there are people that are Christians, and they're looking for pleasure in all the wrong places. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, has a great quote. He says, What fools they are who for a drop of pleasure drink a sea of wrath. For one little drop of pleasure, they'll chase that, and then they get a whole sea of wrath. Instead of that, turn to God. Turn to Christ. Even as a believer, you can be, you can be backslidden. You can go away from the Lord for a while. Turn back to Him. As an unbeliever here today, if you've never been born again, turn to Christ, the Creator. Turn to Him. He will forgive. He's merciful. He's merciful. He says that if your burden is heavy, give it to Him. He'll take it. He'll take your burden. Your burden of chasing this kind of life of pleasure. Give it to Him. He's the one that truly knows. He knows all things. He knows what it's like to have the power. Jesus could have had anything He wanted when He was on this earth. Did he? No, he served. He saved us. He gave his life. He could have had anything, but he didn't. We can never be satisfied with the pleasures of this world. Christ is the only place. The Bible says that he'll give us pleasures forevermore. True godly pleasure is found only in Christ. Turn to him. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your idols. Believer or unbeliever, turn away from those things and turn to Christ. That's what we've got to do. It's the only hope. This is the bad news Solomon gives us. The whole New Testament gives us the good news. Let's turn to him now in prayer. Lord, we are thankful that this book, the book of Ecclesiastes, was inspired by you. It teaches us, Lord, what not to do. Sometimes we forget, Lord. We, we drift off. We don't realize where we're going. We just follow our hearts. We follow the world. And it's passages like this that can pull us back. 
that can drive us back to you. That we can come before you and, and repent of our idols. Our idols that we have in this life. Help us to crush them and turn to you. For those who are not born again, for those today that have not experienced the pleasures of Jesus Christ, I pray that they would turn to him. They would forsake all these earthly pleasures and seek the eternal pleasure. Jesus Christ, our Lord, forever and ever in heaven. We ask this not because we are anything special, but because we rest upon his work and his person. Amen.